0: The live opinions, descriptions, and accounts expressed on the Best of Times radio hour are those of the hosts and the guests of this show, and not necessarily those of Town Square Media or this station. Consult with your attorney, accountant, or other professional for final advice in making your decision. The Best of Times, live from 710 Keel Studios in Shreveport, Louisiana, celebrating age and maturity. Helping you make the best news of your life the best they can be. The best
1: of times. Your host, Gary Coligas. Good morning, Architects listeners. I'm Gary Coligas, the publisher of The Best of Times, the only news magazine for mature adults in Northwest Louisiana. Thank you for tuning into our show today. Also thanking those listening via the internet at www710 710 keelcom and thank those listening via the radio pub application on their Apple and Android devices. In just a few minutes, we're going to learn about the latest in medical surgical techniques. So stay tuned to the show for some very interesting and beneficial information. It is Saturday, February the sixth, and we are broadcasting our radio show today from the studios of News Radio 710 Keel, a Town Square Media station here in Shreveport, Louisiana. However, today's show has been pre-recorded, so we will be unable to accept call-in questions and comments from our loyal radio listeners. Be sure to pick up the February issue of the Best of Times at one of our 522 distribution locations. We thank you for the many compliments on our magazine. We do do appreciate hearing from you. If you're unable to find a copy, remember to visit our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com to view current and past issues. The Best of Times is requesting your feedback about our magazine and our radio show by completing our reader survey. We ask you to complete this, this survey that can be found in our previous January issue of The Best of Times, or you can go online on our website by clicking the red banner add to complete our survey. We would love to have these surveys completed by February the 14th uh, of this year. We thank the many who have already completed and submitted their surveys to us. We do appreciate your comments and suggestions. The Shreveport Little Theater Guild will host a fundraiser to support the theater on Friday, March the 4th, at East Ridge Country Club. And this gala is called Applause to Broadway. There will be live entertainment and performers. To reserve your ticket, uh, please call 655-2004. That's 655-2004. On Thursday, February 11th, there will be a wine, art, and music event uh, at 1800 Prime Steakhouse located in Boomtown's Casino in Bossier City. The, there will be w- food and wine pairings by Chef Plavix and music provided by Twang. This is being hosted by our friends at the Bossier uh, Arts Council. For more information, do call 741 8310. That's 741 8310. The Bossier Council on Aging is pleased to present an informational program by Dr. Gary Booker on Friday, February the 12th from 10.30 a.m. to 11.30 a.m. The program will discuss Alzheimer's disease itself and all the current treatments now available. For more information about this particular presentation, do call 741-8302. Remember to log on to our website at www.thebestoftimesnews.com for a listing of announcements made during Today's radio show, as well as information about upcoming events, activities, and news that you can use. We'll be right back with more information, but now a word from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times radio hour here on News Radio 710 Kiel, proudly presented by A Bears Town Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer.
0: Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now,
1: back to the best of times with your host, Gary Kaligas. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, proudly presented by Avers, Tending country, Upstreet Port, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Kaligas, I thank you for listening to our show today and also thanking those who might be listening via the internet at www.710keel.com. Joining me on my show today is a very special guest. is Dr. Kuai, is that correct? Close? Cooey. Close? Yes. Cooey, right? Better? Yes. Perfect. Perfect. Who is the assistant professor of surgery at our fabulous LSU Health Sciences Center in Shreveport, and she's going to discuss the medical advances of surgery. I want to thank you, doctor, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour.
2: Thank you very much. It's a privilege to be here Gary. I appreciate it.
1: Well, doc, I was so impressed. I've, uh, as you know, I've attended the many, and I probably promote the many med courses that are offered by LSU Medical School to laypersons like me and others uh, over the past I think it's been like 3 or 3 or 4 years. And and it gives an opportunity for us lay people to understand what medical students go through and also getting those fabulous professors like you are one of those fabulous, very young professor, by the way. She is very young, very petite, but very smart, very brilliant. And I was very impressed with your presentation, and I learned a lot. I thought I knew a little bit about surgery, being a quasi-medical person. Uh, but you gave us a remarkable presentation, and I felt that my listeners need to know a little bit about the, um, the evolution of surgery. And uh, we learned a lot that evening, and and I think that that this type of presentation, though we're not, it's not going to be television It'll be show and tell like you offered us there, which some people really enjoyed it, some people did not enjoy the show and tell. But uh, I mean the show and tell videos I'm talking about. We also did hands-on, which was remarkable. I don't think anybody's ever experienced, especially a layperson like me, to to use those latest, greatest, state of the art. Medical uh, devices, correct?
2: Yes, absolutely.
1: And they have evolved and changed over many years, just like the technique that you're training new surgeons today and and, and other physicians about the surgical techniques. So t- tell us a little bit about your
2: background. Um, so I'm a general surgeon. I grew up in Oregon. I went to medical school at Oregon Health Sciences University and um, then completed general surgery residency training. I did a health services research fellowship through the Robert Wood Johnson Clinical Scholars Program and earned my master's at Yale in health services research. And then I joined faculty here at LSU and at Overton Brooks VA. And I'm so grateful to to get to take care of our veterans. They are such a fantastic group and I appreciate everything they done so it's a it's a privilege to care for our veterans at the VA
1: Wow, you have a lot of credentials and one one thing I was very impressed that you were uh, on a board member of the National Board of Medical Examiners Wow that is a very prestigious organization
2: that that was a privilege to be to be involved with that um it's an organization that does all the licensing for uh doctors they uh uh oversee the usmle exams that all medical students take there's three exams before they can get their medical license and that was such a privilege to get to be involved with that
1: and at a very young age, I'm, I'm, hey, I know a lot of people probably have been willing to be on that serve on that particular committee or, or our group, but uh, uh, I, you know, it's very. I'm very proud that that you were appointed to that. Is it an appointment?
2: It, it was. I was appointed through the American Medical Association, so I, I enjoyed that experience. It was great getting to meet all the other board members and also interacting with the medical students who gave so much input. So that was a privilege, and I was thankful for it.
1: And you are very uh, published, but you're, you're a wonderful presenter. I, I like your presentation skills. I know you're, probably your medical students love the way you um, uh, are very didactic, very procedure-oriented. Um, uh, being an engineer, I, I see that technical aspects of you, but you put it down to a layman's term, especially when people don't know the, the uh, terminology or the procedures. And likewise, in the mini-med, you brought it down to our level, our understanding level.
2: Well, oh, thank you, yeah i appreciate that that's a wonderful phrase i i love teaching it 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 gives me joy i think anyone who goes into surgery they have a duty to teach the next generation and so i appreciate you saying that thank you so much
1: so what so in addition to training medical students and surgeons to be and even probably surgeons that are already new techniques you also perform procedures right
2: Yes, I work full-time as a staff surgeon. Um, My appointment is through the LSU, and I teach students and residents there, but the patients I take care of are actually at Overton Brooks VA, and I I operate every Monday and on Thursdays and see patients in clinic, so I'm a full-time surgeon.
1: So what types of surgeries are involved?
2: Oh, lots of fun surgeries.
1: Lots of fun. So
2: they're they're the ones that we call elective surgeries, which you um, schedule in clinic ahead of time, and then there's emergency surgeries so common elective surgeries that my patient population which is mostly veterans have are hernias inguinal hernias ventral hernias incisional hernias which are the abdominal wall hernias a lot of my veterans also have hemorrhoids that's, that's another common uh, disease process that I take care of and then also a lot of cancers colon cancer, rectal cancer, and even breast cancer. Even though the, most of my patients are males, we, we do have some breast cancer. And then gallbladder disease, That that is a big one. And I see gallbladder disease not only in the elective surgeries, which are the patients who've been hurting um, when they eat and come in um, into my clinic, but the ones that come in as an emergency into the hospital, there are ones that um, – are pretty sick where they have fevers and a elevated white blood cell count and those are ones that we might do more urgently and then other urgent uh, surgeries that we have are appendectomies and and then other uh, oh I had too much fun talking about this I'll keep going unless you stop me Gary <laughs> <laughs> no, go ahead. Go
1: ahead. so it's very diversified they're all different yes. types of surgery yes and I, and I had one individual uh, wanted me to ask you um, And she was at this meeting. She was at your mini-med and failed to ask this question. So when medical students learn about surgical techniques, are they specializing, like what an ER physician or learn the same surgical techniques that a ENT or a thoracic surgeon would?
2: So the role during medical school is to take these great eager minds that are like sponges and expose them to the width and breadth of medical practice. So we bring them onto the medicine services, we bring them to pediatrics, we bring them to ER, to radiology and to surgery and they come in and observe us operating. They don't learn at the same level as someone who's Said I'm going to dedicate the rest of my life to surgery would be a okay. surgery resident like I don't know if you watch like Grey's Anatomy or ER they have surgery residents there so um, not that that is at all realistic that's not realistic thank you very much <laughs> so <many people. laughs> but um, so the medical students it's an opportunity for them to be exposed to these different fields they come in and they observe us working and then at the end of their third year beginning of fourth year they have to decide out of all these exciting different specialties which one are they to spend the rest of their life doing, so it's it's a, it's a privilege to get to teach them and try to introduce them to surgery.
1: But as I told this individual, correct me if I'm wrong, they all get the experience of doing surgical uh, surgery, uh, right? Of uh, uh, being all on medical. the surgery
2: rotation, absolutely. All of them do ro- rotate through surgery. Yes,
1: and and some acclimated to better and but some of them will still have that skill maybe they have not done as many procedures or whatnot but they they have that uh, knowledge you might they, say.
2: They, that knowledge and it is really important for them to have that because even if you're a medicine doctor or an ER doctor you encounter many diseases that are surgical diseases and many of my primary care doctors or my ER doctors are really the frontline people the first responders if you will to to that they're going to see that patient who comes in with appendicitis and then call me up. So I'm hoping that my wonderful med students are remembering what they learned during their surgery rotation so they, so they can accurately diagnose someone with acute appendicitis or accurately diagnose someone with a bowel perforation or a bowel obstruction. So it was really valuable what they learned during their surgery rotation.
1: And in a few minutes, we're going to learn about all the medical advances in surgery. But I want to ask one other question. So, if a physician, let's say, graduated in the in the in the 90s or so, or like an old person like me, in the 80s and 90s, and he was a surgeon in the 90s, and now he or she wants to learn, do they go back? Where do they get their advanced training to new techniques? Do they go to a med school or do they go to a course in Las Vegas or or the Bahamas?
2: <laughs> <laughs> that is a great question, Gary. And that is a real issue that actually faced an entire generation of surgeons in the nineteen eighties because it was really in the nineteen eighties that laparoscopic surgery started becoming introduced and widespread and we've had all these surgeons who prior to that had trained in the open technique and now they're faced with this and they see these studies that say laparoscopic surgery has uh, less pain or shorter recovery time or less use of narcotics or a a faster return to work so they want to uh, incorporate these techniques so they had to relearn it whether it was going through courses um, that they could do at medical centers going training under another surgeon or even doing fellowships where they spend a year learning that. Um, so the 1980s was really a growing time for, for surgeons who wanted to learn laparoscopy.
1: And it's learned by doing and learn by your peers and others, and, right? And,
2: and videos and live demonstrations um, and sometimes on animal models or, or on computer. Now during this generation, they didn't have it back then. We have computer simulations where you can practice laparoscopic surgery on the computer and simulate going through the entire process. Now we're able to record these surgeries, and I can teach my resident and go over the steps and say, this is how you can cut down on this step that you don't need, or see, this is a wasted step, or if you go straight to here, it'll be much more efficient. So a lot of different ways to learn now that they didn't have back then in the 80s and 90s.
1: Well, uh, let's let's talk a little bit about your presentation, which I thought, in the history of endoscopy and laparoscopic, uh, was was quite interesting. That I didn't know that, you know, that an Arabian physician uh, examined the body, and you showed us the, the techniques using various tubes. Was that interesting? And that's back in 936 A.D. That's a long time ago.
2: That's right, Gary. That is, uh, concepts of endoscopy and laparoscopy have been around for for many, many years. And as you said, ever since back in 900s A.D., there was an Arabian physician who tried to examine different body orifices, which is like the nostrils or the mouth or the ear or the urethra of the genitals using these tubes. And these, these instruments, as we look at them now, kind of are barbaric because they're large, and you think how painful it is to put that in someone else. So we have certainly but that
1: was out of the box syndrome. I mean I'm impressed that these these individuals could think of an idea. You know, but we need to see what's going on, not just Touch and feel, and maybe guess, guesstimate. They probably did a lot of guessing, right?
2: Absolutely. There's a lot of guessing, and a lot of people who who really thought outside of how they were taught. You know that they didn't just listen to the dogma of what their teachers taught, but were able to question it. And it it took many centuries to to try adapt these. But um, I, I really. Well,
1: Well, I was reading also that back in the Middle Ages and the Dark Ages, it was a crime, and and by death or something, if you did autopsies or if you did... uh, what is it called? Examining body parts of dead people for people to learn. Yes, right? it was. It was
2: very, very difficult. They didn't have the resources that we have. Leonardo now.
1: Da Vinci got away with it. He did. <laughs> he did a lot of that and probably uh, documented a lot. But was uh, luckily was in the uh, in the know of who to know that they wouldn't uh, get onto him. So he was one of. Them. And the other thing I thought back in the 1500s that the individual used light. I mean, yeah, you can. You maybe have an item a tube to look but it's gonna be dark in there, right? There's Absolutely. no light. So you have to introduce some light to be able to see.
2: That is really the, the thing that really propelled laparoscopy forward is having a light source because you can have as big a tube or as long a tube as you can but if you don't have light to illuminate that cavity, whether it's the belly or the colon, you or the bladder you won't be able to see anything. And having it being flexible so you could turn around corners. So it was really with the advent of fiber optics. And video that really allowed us and a good light source which really allowed laparoscopic surgery to be propelled forward and and that was really we had all these great people who had these fantastic ideas but their ideas couldn't be really widespread until we got a good light source and 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 flexible scopes and video monitors that we could watch on so there, there were limitations to the speed of dissemination of ideas
1: well I thought this was uh, we're going to we're going to end this and we'll go to break. Uh, you mentioned that that laparoscopic uh, surgery, the newest technique that using many, and we're going to talk about in great detail in a minute, was quite controversial back in the 1970s, everyone. This was not back in the 1400s or 1500s. This was in the Today's era, the 1970s, and this particular doctor at the University of Kiel in Germany stated only a person with brain damage would perform laparoscopic surgery.
2: Oh, my! It sounds hilarious now, but at that time that was a, that was a widespread concept, just like you know when we had a man placed on the moon, and yet now laparoscopic surgery is the standard of care
1: and we'll we'll talk about that right after this message from our sponsors and advertisers who do make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Kiel, proudly presented by A Bear's standing Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer.
0: Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now, back to the best of
1: times with your host, Gary Coligus. Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio While We're proudly presented by A-Bears, Tuning country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Coligas. I do thank you for listening to our show today. Joining me on my show as a special guest is Dr. Cooey, who is the Assistant Professor of Surgery at LSU Health Sciences Center here in Shreveport, and she is discussing the medical advances in surgical procedures. So, Doc, it's been quite interesting. We've talked a little bit about the history, about surgery. I mean, I think, you know, if I was a surgeon back in the 1500s and and even... 1800s. It's probably it was a, a difficult time to decide how to cut, what to cut. You know, they might have, they might have had the, the the techniques in the 1800s and 1900s, but wow, what we do today is way different than what they did back in those years,
2: right? That, that is so true, because um, they didn't have the imaging that we have. They didn't have the anesthesia that we have. So sur- surgery was certainly much less comfortable, nor did the aseptic techniques. So surgery was very Risky back in the 1800s before we had aseptic technique. But most importantly, all surgery back then was done open without what we use now, which is minimally invasive laparoscopic surgery.
1: And explain to our listeners a little bit about the difference. We're going to go into laparoscopic, but what does open mean?
2: So open is the traditional way where you'd make a big cut, put in your hands, find that organ that you need to take out, and and remove it. So if, if say, a patient had a colon cancer, I would make a cut from, from right below their breastbone down to their pubis, a big old there and then reach down and try to dissect out their colon and remove it and afterwards the patient's in the hospital for a week to a week and a half and having a lot of pain as they recover in contrast when we do it laparoscopically, it's very much smaller incisions. We use uh, special instruments that are these long, long shaft instruments. almost looks like working with toothpicks, but, but it's, uh, they're medical devices. And these, these instruments are either 5 millimeters in size or 10 or 12 millimeters in size. So 10 millimeters is one centimeter. That's how big that incision is. Um, so the, the, the benefit of that is that the patient's going to have a lot less pain when you make a, a one-centimeter a one cut or a half-centimeter cut as opposed to an incision going all the way down their belly. Second... Uh, because they have less pain, they're going to get up, they're going to move around a lot faster and be able to use less narcotics. And third, they'll be able to return to work much sooner. So they have a shorter length of hospital stay, which is a decreased cost to our, our health care system. They have a faster return to, to work and, um, and overall smaller incisions. But last of all also is that when you make big cuts on the belly, your body heals by forming scar tissue, and you form scar tissue wherever you've cut into what we call the perineum. So,
1: so when when you cut, it will heal from the inside.
2: Yes, it heals from the inside. Yes,
1: and as well as from the outside. Yes, so, correct. But there's scar tissue, and the longer the the longer the the incision and what could that cause later on
2: oh it can cause problems with bowel obstruction but the reason why it forms scar tissue is that your body's trying to respond to that cut that that injury and so it tries to cover it up and to go uh, heal on there so intestine can get stuck the abdominal wall wherever, wherever there's this big cut. Um, uh, bands of fibrous tissue can form wherever there's these incisions. So when those bands of incision or scar tissue form, the intestines can twist on them and lead to a bowel obstruction later. Oh,
1: I didn't know that. And okay, I learning c- something new today that I'll remember. Maybe you told us this, but I don't remember that. And so that's one of the other problems of having the open open type surgery, yes. that you could have, have that possible complication and you would know about that till later way later
2: um, the, it would it takes a while for that to develop it does take so it would happen much later but you still have some scar tissue with laparoscopic surgery but there's much smaller areas where that scar tissue would form okay
1: what about and I think you brought that up at our at our mini med is if you do the traditional old type of incision in an individual you, you generally cannot go back to that same incision if ever you had to go back into that part. is that correct it, I, it, it,
2: it is so um, but sometimes you have to go back <laughs> to that same way which makes the surgery a lot harder so as I said your body tries to heal by forming scar tissue or the intestines goes get stuck up there and then when you have to go back in you could cut into a bowel that's stuck into there so sometimes I have to go cut in through a different area and if, if the incision is so big there may not be any other areas to cut so it's a much lengthier process when we do what we call lysis of adhesions, cutting down the scar tissue.
1: Okay, let's let's tell our listeners a little bit about the history about laparoscopic surgery, especially laparoscopic appendectomy, who who Doctor Kurt Sim S. E. M. M. Uh, was he the individual that
2: Yes, he performed the first laparoscopic surgery, and Doctor Sem was a German surgeon, and he was pretty unique. Not only was he a gynecologist, but he was also an engineer. Good man. So, <laughs> so <laughs> you having, know why I like that? I, yeah, I'm I an do. engineer. <laughs> that, that comes close to your heart. So, having that mindset of an engineer, he was really able to think out of the box and think creatively. He, over his lifetime, invented more than 80 medical devices, wow. from laparoscopic suturing devices, ligature devices, which are devices. For tying stuff or coagulation devices, which help clot bleeding. And one of the things that helped enable him to be so prolific is that. Not only did he come up with ideas, but his family also owned an instrument company. So when he'd come up with an idea, he could go to his family company and make the prototype and test it out. So that, that was really kind of this, this merging of the perfect timing, the perfect storm, which allowed him to be so prolific and to develop these ideas. So in 1970s, he started doing laparoscopy in at this university in Germany, and that's when his colleagues there said, only a person with brain damage would perform laparoscopic surgery. So he, he faced the scorn and the wrath of his, his professional community.
1: So did his colleague say that before the procedure was about to be done? I bet he was nervous. Or afterwards? I,
2: I think it was when he was presenting his work, which was he started actually with doing uh, gynecologic procedures, which was like an ovarian cyst enucleation. And then while presenting his work, then people were dismayed that the this, this surgery would try to do work laparoscopically. But he persisted, and then a decade later, in 1981, which is not that long ago, most of us can remember 1981, he performed the first laparoscopic appendectomy
1: the very first one yes and and of course through his techniques i'm sure they've been refined since 1981 but very much <laughs> but then the instruments probably were
2: many different generations of
1: instruments <laughs> they were all probably stainless steel back in the 1981s and now they're high-grade plastic is that right <laughs> disposable, are, <laughs> disposable
2: Are some are reusable but much much smaller much more efficient streamlined
1: So what types, and I think we talked about this initially, what types of procedures are generally using laparoscopically?
2: So what I do laparoscopic surgery commonly are inguinal hernias, ventral hernias, which are abdominal wall hernias in the front of your belly. I do all my gallbladders laparoscopically unless there's a contraindication. I try to do all my appendectomies laparoscopically unless there's a contraindication. I do my colon cancers, colon resections laparoscopically. Um, Those are the common general surgery procedures that I do. Other, Other surgeons who specialize, say, in... Uh, liver or pancreas disease are pushing the boundaries because uh, liver and pancreas surgery used to be primarily an open surgery with big cuts in the belly. Now, more and more liver and pancreas surgeons across the country at highly specialized centers are learning to do it laparoscopically.
1: Wow! So that that's an evolution. Because the, as we talked about earlier, we're going to talk about a little bit more detail in the next segment, these instruments are somewhat specialized that you use. Being been there, done that, the doc let us use some of these particular instruments. Uh, they are definitely high-tech and definitely need a lot of training to be using these particular instruments on a, on an individual. So we'll be right back with more information. But now we're from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Kiel, proudly presented by A-Bear's and Country of Shreveport, your Dodge Chrysler Ram and Jeep dealer.
0: Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Kiel. Now, back to the best of times with your host, Gary Kaligas.
1: Welcome back to our show, the best of times radio hour, probably presented by A Bears, tenning Country of Shreveport, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram, and Jeep dealer. I'm Gary Coligas. I do thank you for listening to our show today and also thanking those who might be listening via the internet at www.710keel.com. Joining me on my show today is a special guest, this is Dr. Cooey, who is the Assistant Professor of Surgery at LSU Health Sciences Center in Shreveport, and she is discussing on our show today the medical advances of surgery. So thank you, Doctor, for joining us today here on the Best of Times Radio Hour.
2: Thank you. It's a privilege to be here.
1: So, Doc, uh, we're learning a little bit about surgery, and, but I think I, we need to clarify to my listeners. I'm just thinking of a question here. Not all surgeries, because I know a lot of my listeners out there are going to run to their physician and surgeon and say, I've got this, this, this situation, I want it done laparoscopically. So not every surgery can be done laparoscopically. True?
2: That, that is true. And, and
1: why is that?
2: So the first, the first premise in surgery is always do no harm. Our goal is always to do good for our patients. And even though laparoscopic surgery has less pain, smaller incisions, you have to be able to enter the abdomen safely and know that you won't injure anything there. So if you have a ton of scar tissue where you have all this intestine stuck up to the abdominal wall, it may not be safe to enter laparoscopically. Um, And
1: being safe, being safe for the patient, but also the convenience. I'm not saying safe for the physician, but it's more difficult if you have to move that particular scar tissue and that fatty tissue etc is that right
2: no, not really it's, it's really all about what's safe for the patient because I don't mind spending an extra four hours doing something laparoscopic and dissecting through something if I know it means shorter recovery for the patient huh? but it's about that injury to the intestine so for instance when I do gallbladder surgery there's are certain areas that I need to enter the abdomen in order to put in my devices my instruments If some of my patients, they may have had five different surgeries on their belly, and their belly looks like a roadmap of scars, that's just not safe to to try to do it laparoscopically because of all the scar tissue that's going to be all over there. There's different approaches for how we enter laparoscopically, but sometimes there's no real safe way. So in that case, I might just have to do it open. Other times, they're too sick to do it laparoscopic when it's an emergency case. If, if say, they um, have a bowel obstruction and the intestines are really dilated and enlarged and filled with gas, being able to put in a laparoscope and fill the belly up with gas is not really possible because all the intestine is just ballooned up with gas so you can't see things very well. Another case is if they have something covering the belly, like that mesh, Mm -hmm. when you do hernia repairs of the belly and have a big old piece of mesh there, I'd have to cut through that mesh in order to get in, and that would ruin that previous surgery they had. So there are several situations. And then fourth, especially with gallbladder surgery, sometimes some patients might come in when they're extremely sick and the gallbladder is so diseased where it almost looks liquefied. And it's, it's, the, the goal is to never harm the patient. And there's some structures that are very fine and minute, what we call the common bile duct or the cystic duct. And when the gallbladder is just this, this mess of pus and infection and it's so diseased or maybe the gallbladder is perforated and there's tons of, of inflammation around there, it might not be safe to do it laparoscopic. Then I tell my patients always, I'm going to do what's safest for you. And then that might have to be the big cut.
1: So, Doc, how would you know that particular gallbladder has those particular uh symptomology.
2: There's a couple different signs. Usually when the gallbladder is very sick, their white blood cell count may go up very high, much higher than normal. They may have a very severe fever. Um, They may become unstable where their blood pressure could sink down. Their heart rate could start racing really high. Their breathing could become very rapid. We can also get imaging to help us know. There's different types of imaging. There's ultrasound where they use sound waves to, to to look at the gallbladder, and there's CT scans, CAT scans, and that can usually give you a very good idea of how difficult it will be to remove that gallbladder. For most gallblowers, I try to start laparoscopic always, but some, when you see them automatically, you know that that's going to be a disaster and it's just going to be safer for the and patient. The, and
1: that is truly done on pre-op or prior examination before the scheduled surgery?
2: Um, those situations are usually emergency <laughs> surgeries. <laughs> most of the elective ones, the infection has gone down, so there's less of that severe problem. But um, th- those those images are all done. We, we talk, sit down and talk with the patient before we go off to surgery. We talk. I usually will show the patient my CT scans and go over their labs and show them what what I'm facing and then describe these are possible different scenarios and this is what I might do in this situation or this situation or that situation.
1: So, Doc, the other question I have is that's why, and I I emphasize some of my friends out there, it's important to know your medical history. When you had prior surgeries, and I had one one guy said, well, I had surgeries back in the 60s and 70s. Who cares? In the 2016. I said, well, your doctor needs to know if he or she doesn't know that, right? It yeah, out, you it are does so right, Barry.
2: Gary. It, it is very important. It's very important. I I say to the whole audience out there, know what your surgical history is. Know what your medical history is. If you've had heart attacks, if you have CHF, know the medications you take because that's going to help your doctor. They're not mind readers.
1: <laughs> and, and and correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't know if the, 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 the scanning, the imaging techniques they use now, they probably have them good enough, could tell you if I have had two hernia repairs. Would it know that?
2: No. It wouldn't know that? No. On either side. Um, Because the mesh
1: is probably not. Metallic. I don't know what color. Oh, you showed us the mesh. It's not
2: metal. No, it's not metal. So the mesh, in an ideal situation, grows into the abdominal wall and gets incorporated into it. So it's really very hard to see it on the CT scan. If something happened where the mesh no longer lies nice and flat and is all crumbled up in a ball in a mess, then you would see that. Right. But in, in most cases, after several years, it's grown into the belly wall, and it, it's, just, it's so incorporated you really can't tell.
1: Well, as as I told you here, I'm going to release my HIPAA information. I've had um, hernia repairs on either side. One was done in 1981 using the open method, and uh, I was in the hospital for, I think, eight days before I was discharged finally. And then in 1990, 1990 eight or nine, I had my second one laparoscopically and I and was day surgery and went in and came out and walked and everything And uh, but it was two different size and of course the doctor knew extensively that I had the mesh on the other side because I remember laparoscopically he said for some reason he saw it. I said, saw what? Saw the mesh on the other side it was okay and intact and everything So, and that's the one thing that we learned which I didn't know I, I asked Questions at all these medical meetings, and you answered it. I thought when you put the gas to make for laparoscopically, you just pumped it up as large as you can. (laughs) <laughs> to make the guy or make the lady as big as possible. So you have a lot of room to see in there. But I learned something new. There is a critical factor that you, the doctor, and the technicians, it's not as much gas as we could pump into you to blow you up, <laughs> right?
2: You're very right, Gary. It's, it's not as big as we can blow it up. It's it's a delicate dance, a ballet, if you will, for what your body can tolerate and what's safe. So we, we have certain... Uh, what we call millimeters of mercury for we, how we measure pressure and what's a safe uh, volume and uh you you don't go beyond that because at certain points then it compresses the blood vessels in your body and affects that return of blood to your to to your to your heart and to your lungs and also can get reabsorbed in a way that you don't want it so you um Uh, just put it up to what has been shown in the research to be a safe level, which would allow you to see things safely, but not more than that.
1: Okay. The other new thing that I learned at at your conference, which I was going to tell you about, hopefully she'll do this again because all of the, 30, 40 attendees got to experience doing um, with these medical devices, microspoctive. she was talking about the, the instruments we got to practice, not on each other, but on <laughs> simulation of actually suturing, clipping, clutting, stapling, which I didn't know I didn't even know that was happening, but yes, you do, there is stapling involved in doing uh, the appendectomy and hernia, whatever. I can't remember what else was used to staple, but you provided us and trained us and taught us in a and I would say in an hour how to do this I was like amazed
2: well, I, I loved seeing kind of that that look of discovery on people's faces as they're as they're playing with the instruments and trying and actually a lot of the people did do a mesh implementation for an inguinal hernia and went through the steps on these uh, simulators that we have and that's one of the wonders of what we can do now to teach people we can teach them before they ever go into the operating room and see a patient we can teach them on these physical models we can teach them on computers and that's why I love teaching and seeing that that joy discovered and, and, in the, and discovery.
1: the videoscope whatever. It's- called, yes. that you're able to see what you're doing with not actually being, it was it was very amazing, but I will I will commend you, I now I know why you and other surgeons have steady hands. You oh. have to be extremely steady to do this, but this is a very small instrument and a very critical, and though I did suture, uh, my son, the doctor, was so impressed that <laughs> I did suture, and I did clip, and I did put the mesh, and I passed the course, and uh, I was also awarded the, whatever it is, the, the instrument to take home. Yes. And I want to tell listeners out there, I learned something new about medical uh... Uh, medical, what do you call it, um, cleanliness, sterile, that all these instruments are used only once because they're sterilized, right?
2: Mm-hmm, exactly. They're some are disposable, some are reusable. They are always sterilized in between patients, and that's just our techniques and philosophy of asepsis. That's how we've been able to do surgeries without getting infections because 100, 150 years ago in the 1800s, they didn't have these techniques, and people were dying from infections after surgery.
1: So what can you tell, again, our our listeners out there, they should definitely recommend to their physician about Doing, their, doing if a surgery is needed laparoscopically tell, think, tell, tell them the reasons again
2: oh the the benefits of laparoscopic surgery are so many. Um, if you can have it laparoscopically done, it usually has smaller incisions, which mean you 're going to hurt less. It just makes sense with a smaller cut you're going to have less pain, and when you have less pain, you use less narcotics. sometimes you may not even use any narcotics and um, with less pain and less use of narcotics, you can return back to work sooner. And by returning work to work sooner, that's less of a, a cost on our healthcare system, less of a cost on our economy, and it's also shorter length of hospital stays. So most inguinal hernias nowadays are all outpatient procedures. It's all you do it, you go home and, and you recover, and you can you can even go golfing in the next couple of days if you want. Um, but there there's so many benefits, and even when you look at laparoscopic gallbladder surgery. That was my area of uh, research was looking at outcomes. We found looking at national databases, looking at uh, millions of different patient records over a decade, that if a, a patient had a laparoscopic surgery as opposed to an open surgery for gallbladder surgery, they had lower rates of mortality shorter length of hospital stay, decreased cost of hospitalization, and decreased uh, surgical complications. And this benefit is seen even more amplified as patients are older and older.
1: And, and but the important thing I was going to tell you, that, and I want to emphasize this, I know some of our listeners out there are writing down notes to tell their doctor next week that they want, if they have their elective procedure, done laparoscopic. Not everything is done laparoscopic.
2: That, that's very true. Uh, uh, many, many procedures, we're still learning how we can implement that, like in transplantation. Um, that, that's, that's just on the forefront of learning to implement that. And and some patients just have too much surgery in the past or
1: and that's the other factor, severely correct? severely
2: diseased to be able to have it done safely. So it's really uh, case by case, and it's always about what's safest for the patient.
1: And the other question I think one of the uh, attendees wanted to ask, which Gary knew the answer to this one, is if I do it, I, they, the lady would ask. She said, "If if I did a surgery the common with it, they're going to put me completely out with heavy uh, anesthesia. But when I do it laparoscopically, am I away watching this?"
2: Um, It depends on the type of surgery. Usually you're not awake and watching it. I don't (laughs) don't think I would want to be. Certainly not for a colon surgery, but actually for inguinal hernias, some surgeons do it under a spinal or under local and sedation. But you have to be a candidate that's relatively healthy or, or or some actually can't tolerate general anesthesia. So we might do that. So potentially you could watch it, but um, I, I, I don't, I don't know that anyone would want to. Well,
1: well, the other problem is I don't think they would want to see their gut Distended as much as it, I think it was it distended. I didn't want to see mine that big. It's already big already. So. <laughs> so again, it's it's remarkable the technology. And you might, I would love to know uh, what are the the future in surgery? Or do we have any future being considered? I'm sure medical technologies. I had Doctor Shelby and and Doctor Coleman on my show yes a few weeks ago talking about the latest greatest in and their microsurgery with. Um, Uh, a stent placed in the eye to help cure or help cure glaucoma so I'm sure there's medical advances all going all around.
2: Absolutely, the goal is really to to continue that progress for minimally invasive surgery, and as we're trying to convert other surgeries that are traditionally open, like pancreas and liver, that those are challenging ones. And slowly but surely, it's it's growing more that now it's done like um, uh, pancreas, uh, complex pancreas surgeries called Whipples are now increasingly being done laparoscopically. That's one of our most challenging surgeries in general. The, the Whipple um, and also with transplantation now we can harvest donor kidneys and donor livers laparoscopically and uh, it's just continuing that forefront so and the, getting smaller, the, benef- smaller the benefits incisions.
1: of that is what uh, the,
2: similar the, the same decreased pain faster recovery shorter length of hospital stay because it's smaller incisions
1: Okay, but my follow-up question about that is laparoscopically getting a harvesting and a liver, those are big organs. How do you get those out of the body in a small incision?
2: Um, I, 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 I don't do them but but you usually when we retrieve something out of the body laparoscopically we put it in a bag that helps sort of protect it as it comes out or protects the surrounding skin like when I take oh. an appendix out or I take um, I take a, um, a gobbler out it all comes in a bag so we don't get that infection spilling around when I do a laparoscopic uh, colon surgery or rectal surgery you have to make the incision a little bit bigger just big enough to get the that organ out. So I guess the more appropriate word would be laparoscopic assisted surgery. Okay. You, make a slight, you have to somehow a, you get it You're going to have to yeah. get it
1: a little bit to, to yeah. do a proper... To not to uh, make any perforations or tearing out of there, correct?
2: Exactly.
1: Wow, this, this is more But again, I, I want to tell the listeners. I thought the inter- one of the interesting things you said in the 70s. It was challenged by the the mainstream medical community. It was something way out of the box. Nobody's seen it before. But now it's it's very few people say it's not the norm, right?
2: It is the standard of care. Really, it is the norm now.
1: But in the 70s, it was definitely challenging, especially, I thought, the his, one of his colleagues saying, you know, only a person with brain damage, poor guy, but he felt bad, would have heard that statement, would perform this type of laparoscopic surgery.
2: That's so true. And what that really shows you is that medical knowledge has advanced so much, and we have to always keep questioning and challenging what we think as the norm, because... What what I trained um, when I was in medical school is not the same way as what they'll train in 10 years from now or in 20 years from now, and having that creativity and that ability to think out the box is so important.
1: We thank you for educating us and all of our listeners about laparoscopic surgery and the new techniques of surgical procedures in the area. Thank you a lot.
2: Thank you Gary. It's a privilege to be here. I, I really enjoyed this.
1: We'll be right back with more information, but now work from our sponsors and advertisers who make this radio show possible. You're listening to the Best of Times Radio Hour here on News Radio 710 Keel, proudly presented by A Bears Stunning Country Express Report, your Dodge, Chrysler, Ram and Jeep deal.
0: Gary's got more of the Best of Times coming for you on 710 Kiel.
1: Thank you for listening to our show today. Join us next Saturday for another show that could benefit you or your loved ones. Please thank our sponsors and advertisers who support our radio show and our news magazine, The Best of Times. Don't forget to pick up your personal copy of our magazine at one of our 522 distribution locations. May God bless you and your family. God bless America. Have a great day and a great weekend. Thank you again for listening to our show. I'm Gary Kaligas, wishing you and yours the best of times both today and every day. Have a great day.
0: You've been listening to the best of times on 710 Keel. Join us again next Saturday at 9 for the best of times. This is News Radio 710 Keel, K E E L, Shreveport Mosier.